Hi everyone, my name's Ella and this is The Crime Chick, a podcast discussing the most horrific of crimes. I'm finally back, I know it's been a few weeks, I've just had a lot going on with corona and lockdown and uni and problems with my flat, so I am sorry but I will be back to weekly episodes now which I hope you're glad to hear. Now today's case is an unsolved kidnapping and murder case And if you're anything like me, it will most likely leave you feeling very, very frustrated and on edge. This is the spine-chilling case of Tara Calico. So, grab a glass of wine and make yourself comfy. It's going to get sinister. Tara was born on February 28th, 1969, and she lives with her mother, Patty Dole, her stepfather, John, and her sister, Michelle, and they all live in Valencia County, New Mexico. Now, Tara is a very active person. She loves sports, which I wish I could say the same for myself, but she loves to run. She was a cheerleader in school, and in her free time, she liked to play tennis, and she often went on very long bike rides. So on the 20th of September 1988, when she is 19 years old, it is no surprise to her family when she tells them she is going to go on a bike ride. But her own bike has a flat tyre, so she asks her mum if she can take her bright pink bike out instead, and of course Patty agrees. Tara tells her mum that she needs to be back by 11.30am, as she's going to see her boyfriend and has a tennis lesson after that, and that if she isn't back around that time, to come and drive and pick her up so she isn't late. So it's 9.30, Tara heads out on her bike and goes to ride around her usual route, which is a 17-mile stretch along State Road 47, and she takes her Walkman player to keep her entertained on her journey. I also think it's important to note that Patty used to go on bike rides with her daughter, but one morning she was convinced she was being followed by a man in a car, and since then she has refused to go out riding again, and she even urged Tara to take pepper spray on her rides with her, just in case anything were to happen, but Tara just thought her mum was being paranoid, and so she refused. So the hours go by and it is soon 11.30am and Tara isn't home yet. So, as Tara had asked, her mother goes out to look for her and drives around her usual cycle route. But after driving every mile of the route, there is no sign of Tara. And Patty starts to panic a little bit because Tara is always on time. I mean, she is never late to anything but she is trying to stay logical and hopeful and starts to wonder if maybe, just maybe, Tara got home after Patty left. So Patty drives home again, but there's no Tara. And at this point, Patty and her husband are seriously worried and they are worried enough to call the police to report her missing. And surprisingly, the police start investigating immediately, which is quite unusual as Tara at this point has only been gone for a couple of hours and she is an adult. But the police believe Patty when she tells them that Tara is a very reliable person and going missing even for a short period of time is very unlike her. 
So the Valencia County Sheriff's calling departments from all across New Mexico to help with this case. And I mean, this task force is now huge. They have people looking out on foot, on horses, there's bloodhounds out trying to catch a scent, and they even have huge all-terrain vehicles out looking. And after only a few hours that same day, along Tara's bike route, they find something. Bike tyre marks that match the bike she was riding. Now, they don't have the bike there to compare the marks, but they are convinced the marks are from Tara's bike. But unfortunately, the tracks didn't lead them anywhere. But the marks did look spun out like there had been a struggle and very close to the bike marks are car tyre marks. And there's more. They find a piece of a broken yellow Walkman, the same one that Tara had taken with her that day. So obviously what the police are presented with so far is cause for concern. We have bike and car tyre marks that present the possibility of a struggle, a broken piece of Tara's Walkman and still no sign of Tara. And it's been quite a number of hours now. So the police start to wonder if maybe, just maybe, someone saw Tara while she was on her bike ride. And whilst asking various people around the area, they get lucky. There are two witnesses who say they had seen Tara, some farm workers, and they say around 11.30pm she was heading north along the road. Now this fits in with Tara telling her mum she'd be home by around 11.30, so we know that she went on her full bike ride with no issues, and this narrows down the time frame for police as to when and where Tara went missing. Now, during this time, Tara's family out searching themselves and trying to find others to assist in their search. But to make matters even worse, the weather is terrible and it's so bad that they have to call off the air search. And there's a huge worry now that any evidence the police haven't yet found will be washed away. And despite all this, they carry on the search as well as they can. Now this search goes on for three days and they still find nothing, no bike, no Tara, no evidence. But they do have 200 people searching tirelessly for her. And then more witnesses start to come forward. And some of them say they saw someone in a pickup truck following her. Now they do also mention that she had her headphones in and didn't seem to see the truck following her. And despite these seemingly promising leads, nothing comes out of it and the police hit another dead end. And this is a dead end that lasts for months. And I can't imagine how excruciating these months must have been for her family, knowing that their daughter is out there somewhere and they cannot do anything. The case runs cold. That is until what everyone thinks is a breakthrough. Now, this breakthrough is insane. So in summer of 1989, John, Tara's stepdad, receives a call from one of his friends saying that there is a photo of Tara on a show called A Current Affair and that he needs to watch the show now. So obviously at this point, John is very confused, anxious. He has no clue what is going on. So his friend explains to him further. 
Now, he says there was a woman in North Florida on June 12th, 1989, outside a supermarket, and she saw a man in a van on his own. Now, obviously, she thinks nothing of this. It's just something she remembers seeing whilst in the parking lot. But when she comes out the store, she notices that the van has gone. But in the parking space is a Polaroid picture. Now, she picks up this picture and what she sees is terrifying and she instantly hands it over to the police. Now, this picture is all over Google and it will be up on my website. But in this photo, you can see a girl who looks around 18, 19 and a younger boy who looks around 10. And in the photo, they are both bound with their hands behind their back and gagged with duct tape. So the woman takes this Polaroid to the police and gives them a very vague description of the van and the man in it. And she says that he looks around his 30s, has a white moustache and the van is also white. So the police instantly set up roadblocks around the area, but they find nothing. And six weeks go by and the Florida police still haven't found this man. So they decided to put this picture up on a current affair, which is when John saw it. And he thinks the girl looks exactly like Tara. So John calls New Mexico police and the family all go to Florida, as well as the FBI who are now leading this investigation. And the first thing they want to do is take this photo to the lab for analysis. And upon seeing the photo, Patty is also convinced this is her Tara, just a little bit older and with no makeup on. And the girl in the photo even has the same scar as Tara on her leg. And there's one more thing in the picture that makes Patty even more certain that it is her. A book, one called My Secret Audrina, and that is Tara's favourite book. And that's not the only thing they see. On the spine of the book, they can make out a phone number that has been scratched into it. Now, law enforcement do try and track this number down, but not all of the numbers are visible. So they managed to get over 300 possible number combinations. And out of that 300, only 57 were valid phone numbers. And none of the phone numbers ended up leading to anything. Now you're probably wondering, but what about this boy that's in the photo? Well, police initially think they know who it is. And that is because parents Michael and Marty Henley come forward when they see the photo and they think it is their son, Michael Jr., who went missing when he was nine in April of 1988 from Northwest New Mexico when him and his dad were camping. And the place they were camping and subsequently where Michael was taken was just three hours away from where Tara went missing. However, Michael's parents aren't 100% sure whether it is him or not. They're pretty certain, but they have their reservations about it. At this point, police want to find out more about this Polaroid in the hopes that it'll uncover some leads. And they subsequently find out the film that was used only started being produced in May of 1989. And this is eight months after Tara went missing and 13 months after Michael went missing. So from that, we know that the picture was taken 
after this date, but they still need to wait for the analysis of the photo to come back before they have any form of concrete evidence. But when the photos come back, the FBI has no clear consensus and they don't think that the person in the photo is Tara, but Patty will not accept that. So she actually gets Scotland Yard, which is here in the UK involved, and they say it is definitely Tara. Now, as you can imagine, this is probably all very confusing for Tara's parents. They have the FBI telling them it's not her, Scotland Yard saying it definitely is her, and they also had the photo analysed by the Los Alamos National Laboratory, who also say that, based on the ears and the hairline, that it is definitely Tara. So there's a lot of differing opinions, and unfortunately, publicity does begin to die down, and this lead ends up nowhere. But Patty still doesn't give up. She is determined to bring her little girl home. Once again, the years go on and there is still nothing. And I warned you, this is a very frustrating case because we keep getting these leads that actually lead to nothing. And it gets to 1991. And at this point, Patty and John actually trained to become auxiliary deputies with the Valencia County Sheriff's Department. Um, this basically gives them more authority than a normal citizen, but much less than a police officer. And during her training, Patty starts to develop a close friendship with the county sheriff, Lawrence Romero. And he also lost a child, his son, to suicide in 1991 and Lawrence actually starts sending Patty materials to help with the investigation into Tara and this includes photos of dismembered bodies to see if any of them could be Tara and I mean Patty looks through every single one of them but none of them are her. And I mean, can you imagine having to sit there looking through hundreds of photos of dismembered women to see if one of them might be your daughter? I mean, it's just completely heartbreaking. And once again, the years pass and pass and pass and there is nothing. And it gets to 2003 and Patty and John decide to pack up and move to Florida for a fresh start and at this point it has been 15 years since Tara went missing no leads and it was a completely cold case but they still haven't given up hope but unfortunately in 2006 Patty passed away due to poor health and she would never know that two years after her death answers to her daughter's disappearance would start rolling in a Valencia County Sheriff named Rene Rivera says he knows not only what happened to Tara, but who is responsible. Two suspects who were teenagers back when Tara was taken. Now, according to Rene, these two boys actually knew Tara and they had been following her and catcalling her and just being general idiots. But things then took a turn when they hit Tara's bike with their truck. And Rene does say he thinks this was an accident, but accident or not, he carries on to say that the boys put Tara and her bike in their truck. 
Renane then moves on to say that he thinks Tara was threatening to call the police and the boys must have really panicked as they obviously don't want to go to jail. Renee then says the boys disposed of her body, but they didn't do it alone. He also thinks that the boys got help from at least two other people, but he won't say who these others are. Now, this information does get taken to the press and Tara's family obviously sees it. And as you can imagine, they are just desperate at this point for answers and they want these people brought to justice. They want closure for their Tara. But Renee won't arrest the suspects and he says he won't because he doesn't have any evidence. And as you can imagine, the family are super frustrated. They've just found out that the police possibly know whose Tara's abductors and killers are, yet they aren't doing anything about it. And once again, the case just runs cold and the years pass again. And at this point, Tara's sister Michelle kind of takes over the case from her father and she is doing her best to make sure that Tara's name stays out there in the public. And this paid off because in October 2013, a whole 25 years after she disappeared, the police announced they are reopening the case and they are determined more than ever to find answers as to what really happened to Tara. And something very interesting comes to light. In an interview with an ex-Valencia County Sheriff's deputy, Frank Matola, he describes how he took a deathbed statement of a man named Henry Brown. And if you don't know what a deathbed statement is, it is basically an admittance or a confession when someone is near death. Now, Henry said to the sheriff that he knew who murdered Tara. He basically said that in 1988, he lived on the same road as another man who lived in a trailer. And he mentioned that this guy and his friends used to sit around and do drugs in this basement that he'd built himself. Now, if you remember from earlier, Patty, Tara's mum, made friends with a sheriff called Lawrence Romero when she was training to be a deputy, and he had a son who died. And guess what? This guy Frank is talking about is Lawrence's son, named Lawrence Romero Jr. Now, Henry carries on and tells Frank that around the same time Tara disappeared, he was in the basement one night with Lawrence Jr. and a couple of other people named Leroy, David and another guy whose name he didn't know but says he had red hair. Now he says he saw something that looked around the size of a human body wrapped in blue tarp and Henry also says they literally all sit there and start talking to him about how they had accidentally knocked Tara off her bike in their pickup truck on the day she went missing. And this is where it all gets a bit insane because they continue to say that they all kidnapped her, took her to some nearby pits and then sexually assaulted her. Now, from what I've read, apparently they never intended on killing her, but Lawrence Jr. told Henry that she was screaming so much that she was going to go to the police and report what they had done. And so, in his rage, Lawrence Jr. stabbed her to death. 
Frank then states that Henry told him the men kept her in the basement for a while and then dumped her body in a pond. Now, despite all this information that Frank is now telling the police, they just simply can't do anything because Henry is dead at this point, Lawrence Jr. is dead, and there is no way to prove that any of the information given was actually true. The reality is there is no evidence. And it's so frustrating because I genuinely believe that what Henry said on his deathbed was true. It matches up with everything that's happened throughout this case. Yet at this point, 25 years after the disappearance, nothing can be done. And to this day, the family still don't have answers. They don't know where Tara is, what happened to her, whether that was really her in the Polaroid, nothing. But two other Polaroid pictures were actually found and these will also be up on my website to see. Now the first photo was found near a construction site in California and I'm looking at it now and it's a rather blurry photo of a girl's face and it, the photo goes just down to her shoulders and she has what looks like tape covering her mouth and in the background is some sort of striped fabric. And this fabric looks exactly the same as a fabric in the very first Polaroid that was found. Police had a look at this picture and found that the film it was taken on was not available until June 1989. And that is just under a year after Tara went missing. The second photo shows a woman on a train with an unidentified male sitting next to her and her hands and mouth are bound with gauze. Again, the police found that this type of film used to take the photo was made after February 1990. Now, Tara's mother did believe that the first photo was Tara and her sister Michelle stated, and I quote, they had a striking resemblance as for me, I will not rule them out, but keep in mind our family has had to identify many of the photographs and all but those were ruled out. Now, nothing at all came from these photos and to this day, Michelle is still trying to find answers to what really happened to Tara. And I truly one day hope we do find out so Tara's remaining family can finally have some sort of peace. Now, this case was a short but very frustrating one, and I do hope from the bottom of my heart that Tara's family find out what happened to her one day. But as always, I would love to know what you think of this case. What do you think happened to Tara? Do you think police should have followed up leads better? Whatever you think, I would love to hear. So if you'd like, head over to my Instagram, The Crime Chick, and leave me a comment under my most recent post. Alternatively, you can head over to my website, thecrimechick.co.uk, and there will be a section there for you to discuss the case. You'll also find links to articles, reading for the case, photos, and a transcript. And I want to thank you all so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you that takes time out of your day to listen to me. And there will be another episode early next week as this one was a short one and I've been MIA the last few weeks. So keep an eye out for an episode early this coming week and on Friday as well. I hope you're all staying safe during these uncertain times. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure to join me next time on 
The Crime Chick. 